tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. I heard from a listener who asked me not to read the letter on air, and I won't. And I won't mention any names, but the the listener just made the point that if I'm in a bad mood, do I really have to share that? <laughs> well, I don't know. I suppose not, but I really... Dear listener who sent that in, when I read it, I roared laughing, and you've got a point. At any rate, even if the host is a curmudgeon, the Lord is good. And so... And um, maybe maybe my my um, disposition the past few days has been involved with the fact that I'm defrosting refrigerators. It's a thankless task. That said, let's work pray. For in the name of <laughs> no, no. The voice in my head was asking about Maytag. No, no. It's just, it's just, it's. I put it off for a long time. Let me warn all of you: don't put off certain things like defrosting a refrigerator if it needs defrosting. Just a word to the wise. All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created. You shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls, Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And make sure you clean out the lint trap in the dryer. Let's go to the big book on the coffee table. Today is the feast of Saints Timothy and Titus, who are, who were companions of St. Paul. Timothy was the, the son of a, a, a Jewish woman and a Greek man. And, uh, he was, uh, his father was not Jewish, but his mother was. And so uh, Timothy had to be circumcised in later life, uh, though Paul felt it was unnecessary. It was important for their work. So Timothy uh, traveled with St. Paul and his health wasn't always good, but Timothy stuck with Paul. And uh Eventually, he was sent to be the Bishop of Ephesus. I thought St. John was the Bishop of Ephesus. You know, I wonder if the Twelve ever thought of themselves as bishops. I mean, they were bishops. They, were, they had the power of, of the episcopate and ordination. And uh, the, the, uh, we have this kind of, oh, I suppose it's a, a streamlined view of the early church, the church of the first two or three decades, uh, you know, 40, 50, 60 AD. 
uh, we have this view of the church that is kind of influenced by the structures of the church today. And the structures of the church were forming and they were taken from uh, essentially from Jewish structures. Um, I suspect that the episcopate was taken from the, the Essene Mabucha, who was the, he was the kind of a, a, uh, an elector. He was the person who let you in the community or kicked you out of it if you need to be kicked out. Um, the word bishop comes from the Greek word for supervisor or superintendent. And then, of course, there were presbyters, elders. That was a very Jewish institution, which we're going to talk about in these readings. The word means elder, and an elder was ordained in Judaism. Uh, a priest was not ordained. He was initiated, consecrated in his ministry, but not ordained. You were a sacrificer, a sacrificing priest, if your father had been a sacrificer. And his father before him descended from Aaron, the great high priest, so the, the brother of Moses. <clears throat> and then you had the the assistant, the helpers. The Old Testament, those were Levites, they assisted the sacrificing priests, but it was really a synagogue uh, position. I think the Hebrew word, I always have to look it up, but I, I didn't. Uh, shemesh, uh, shemesh, it means the helper. So these these elements of hierarchy, of sacred leadership, came into the church from Jewish structures. And I, I don't know that I can really defend the, the origin of the episcopate in the Essene electors, but... Uh, that's as close as I've been able to come. But moving along, um, I suspect that the 12 especially saw themselves as traveling founders of churches. So a, a bishop is essentially a pastor. In fact, until uh, the Middle Ages, uh, it was considered adultery for a bishop to change his diocese. There was tremendous stability. If you were bishop of a, of a town, no matter how small or insignificant, that was going to be your home for the rest of your life. Um, and, and there was a great deal of stability to the episcopate. So uh, this, this was not compatible with the role of the, of the apostles. They moved around and they appointed supervisors, bishops for areas. And we, we see that in today's readings. Well, Timothy was appointed bishop of Ephesus to organize the church there. Whereas St. John, we look at the early Christian authors, he was thought of as kind of a, uh, well, a, a great rabbi philosophy teacher. Uh, and, and he probably was not saddled with the details of, of the episcopate, you know, uh, the, the, from the very beginning, there were administrative details to the episcopate. So just a thought on that and a thought, of course, to which I admit, I may be wrong. But I think it's very important in looking at the letters of Timothy, First uh, and Second Timothy, to realize this: that that um, there are all sorts of authors who say, because the church was not as structured, that Timothy and and a few other letters of Saint Paul might not be written by St. Paul. I dispute that. I think they were written by St. Paul. Well, the vision of the church he has, the vision of the church that he portrays is to organize. Do not forget these were Jewish people. And as I've just said, they they consider themselves the fulfillment of the religion of Israel. And thus, they use the structures that had been in place for 
millennia, for, for centuries. And, and uh, uh, this was not simply a uh, sort of making it up as you go along. They had structures. So the, the structure of the church that we see in St. Paul's two letters to Timothy and in other places, I don't think these militate against Pauline authorship. I think these are written by Paul, but whether they are not, they're written by the Holy Spirit. So St. Timothy was made Bishop of Ephesus and St. Titus, uh, uh, Bishop of Crete, uh, where the tradition is that he, he died. So, well, let's go back to the readings themselves. This is Paul, an apostle of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, of uh, this juxtaposition that of Jesus Christ Remember, the word means Messiah, an apostle of the Messiah, Jesus, by the will of God. Um, we think of Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ as kind of one phrase. Remember, there were, there's no punctuation in ancient Greek literature. So uh, you can translate this, an apostle of Messiah, comma, Jesus, by the will of God, for the promise of life in the Messiah, Jesus, to Timothy, my dear child. Uh, I'm grateful to God whom I worship with a clear conscience. Now, this is kind of interesting. A clear conscience. The word clear in the text is katharos, which means clean, with a clean conscience. And that would have had a special um, a special ring, uh, sound for, for uh, a Jew. This has to do with what is acceptable, kosher. So his conscience is kosher. As, that's why he says, as my ancestors did. People are accusing him of, of turning his back on Judaism. And he's saying, no, my, my conscience is kosher, is clean, as was the conscience of my ancestors. So I remember you constantly. They're saying, you know, you, you, you brought this Greek in to be to this important position in the church. No, he was Jewish. You're Jewish if your mother's Jewish. If you are the child of... Uh, a Jewish father and a, uh, a non-Jewish mother, you're not considered Jewish. Uh, you, you must undergo a conversion ritual, uh, even as an infant, in order to be considered Jewish. Uh, if your father is a, is a non-Jew, your mother's a Jew, well, you're Jewish. That, that, that's the guarantee of your, your Jewishness. So uh, he's talking to Timothy. Uh, he's remembering... Uh, uh, the, the, the joy of seeing his faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. In other words, these are two Jewish women. He's talking about the, the bona fides, the, the credentials that Timothy has as a Jew. And people are being difficult with Timothy. We see in the letter, he's too young to be a bishop. He's not really Jewish. Well, he is Jewish, and he shouldn't be ashamed of his youth. For this reason, I remind you to stir to flame the gift of God that you have through the imposition of my hands. In other words, this is the gesture of ordination, the imposition of hands. This was a Jewish gesture. It's smicha. A rabbi is ordained, and an elder is ordained. And a sacrificial victim is ordained by the imposition of hands. This gesture is a gesture of consecration to the Lord. And it's used for sacrificial animals. The, the, the sacrificing priest would lay his hands on the head of the animal to be sacrificed. So this is a gesture of consecration. And I think people need to understand that. That ordination is not empowerment for ministry. It's consecration to the purposes of God. You are set aside for the purposes of God. 
uh, uh, and and there's lots lots of ministry in church. Ministry, of course, means table waiting, diaconia, and there are lots of everybody. You're consecrated to God in your confirmation by the laying on of hands. So everybody's consecrated to God, but this special consecration of ordination is a consecration to uniquely to the purpose of God. That that um, every ministry should be aimed at the Lord, but particularly the the diaconal presbyteral and episcopal uh, ordinations are about the liturgy the primary task of the bishop the priest and the deacon is to maintain the worship of god so this this is i think an added dimension every christian is consecrated to the sacrificial life that's why we are anointed priest prophet and king when we're baptized but the anointing and consecration of uh, those who preside at the liturgy, and in those I include the three dimensions of holy orders, the episcopate, the presbyterate, and the diaconate, that these are not just ministerial, these are not just diaconal, these are liturgical. And we saw, was it last week or earlier this week, that they, they translate a word in, in the text of Christ, uh, in the text of the letter of the Hebrews, um, uh, later goes, they translated ministry, but the word means liturgy, public worship. That's what Jews meant when they used the word liturgy. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, I, one might say almost a more direct, uh, uh, consecration that you, uh, that the person ordained, um, his service is, is meant to be ministerial. In other words, waiting on people, but it's also meant to be liturgical. And I, I think that that's the dimension. So I, I don't know if that's a little obscure, but well, you know me, I love obscure. Okay, the gift of God. Now, this is what I really, this, what, the, the drum I really want to beat here. God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather of power and love and self-control. Well, power and love and self-control are contrasted with cowardice. Well, yeah, because the word really means, I think it's delios, which means uh, it has to do with fear. Remember, St. John tells us elsewhere that love casts out fear, that as we grow in love for the Lord, we obey him, not because we fear him, but because we love him. Uh, so the spirit of cowardice, this is, I don't know about you, but it's big with me. Oh, what's going to happen here? What if that happens? What if this happens? I live my life uh, hemmed in by fear of the future. And it, it keeps me from um, using the power that God's given me in ministry, and it it hinders me for love, from love. I'm so worried about what's going to happen that that I I'm much more worried about me than I am other people. And self control, you know, that I'm always dodging a bullet here, worrying about that, thinking, what if this happens? That I it hinders my ability to be the master of my own life. That I, I live in reaction to what will people think? What will people say? What will people do? Uh, what if this happens? What if the stock market? What if instead of saying, I'm going to do the right thing no matter what? So God did not give us this spirit of timidity, of, of living in fear. So do not be ashamed of your testimony to the Lord, nor of me a prisoner for his sake. I mean, if Paul was in trouble, they'd be coming after Timothy pretty soon. Bear your share of the hardship for the gospel with the strength that comes from God. Now, I also want to look at um, uh, this next reading. It's the optional reading from St. Paul's letter to the Titus to Titus, where he calls himself 
a slave of God. That's literally the word. And he's a slave of God and an apostle. Remember, the word apostle means a delegated uh, missionary, someone who is sent out with authority from the one who sends him. Uh, God does not lie. He promised where time began. Indeed, at the proper time, revealed his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted. Um, <clears throat> this reason I left you in Crete so that you might set right what remains to be done and appoint presbyters. The word here is, is really means to, to set up, to set up presbyters. Um, now, I am, I suspect that the word presbyter and episcopus in the very early, earliest days were used interchangeably. Every, every, every bishop was ordained a priest, a presbyter before he was ordained bishop. And every presbyter was ordained deacon. You know, I'm a deacon who's also a presbyter. A bishop is a presbyter who's also a deacon, but he is a, a supervisor, a, an episcopos, someone who oversees things. So you don't lose your diaconal character when you're ordained a priest. You're still a table waiter. You're supposed to be. But you have received another ministry of, of eldership in which you are to to make sure that the gospel is preached and the liturgy is offered and the, the sinner is reconciled and the the uh, the sick are anointed. Uh, that's that's the job of the of the presbyter. He's to say the the mass when the bishop can't be there, but he's to reconcile the sinner to God. He's to he pray for the healing of the sick, and he is to make sure the word is is preached accurately and uh, uh, fully. Okay, so this is organization. The early church had organization, as I said, because. Judaism had organization. They didn't just say, hey, we're a new religion. Let's let's kind of make this up. What do, I, I know presbyters, they'd be good. No, these these ideas came to us from a long formation in the history of Israel. All right. That said, let us go to a break. We will open up the phones at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash forester. Father Simon says... Oh, I'm just complaining. It's what we old people do. On Relevant Radio. I've got plenty to be thankful for. I haven't got great big yachts. To sail from shore to shore. Yes, still I've it's got what old people do, but I've got plenty to be thankful for. <laughs> Definitely. I've got I should, I should play this song more often. For. All right. Um, before we go to letters, I, I just want to touch on the gospel. Just, just a little touching on the gospel. Mark the fourth chapter. Because he says interesting stuff. I, you know, is a lamp brought in to be placed under a bushel basket or under a bed? A bushel basket, why would you put a lamp under a bushel basket? Actually, the word is a modion in Greek, modion, which means uh, a clay pot of a certain measure. Not in, not in modium, modion, modion, uh, uh, two omicrons. It, it's, a, uh, it's a clay pot. 
And I've heard, I don't know if it's true, I can't footnote it well, but I have heard that there were instances in which you would put a lamp under a clay pot. You know, they didn't have matches, they didn't have pilot lights, they didn't have all that stuff. So you would take, uh, you go to your neighbor, get your little oil lamp lit, then you would put it on a, a kind of a stone shelf in the house under a under a uh, a clay pot. You'd, of course, prop the clay pot up on something so that it didn't extinguish. But it kept the flame out of harm's way. It, it kept, uh, you know, it, it kept the flame safe. It didn't get blown out. It didn't burn anything up. And uh, a bed, uh, that's a harder take, but... Uh, Sometimes beds were just raised stone platforms at the end of a house in in uh, uh, the style of a house that was common in Judea at the time. These are things I've heard. I can't really footnote them. On the other hand, it might just be humor on the part of Jesus. You don't you don't hide the lamp. You don't light something to 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 hide it. Well, nothing is hidden except to be made visible, and I think that's an important biblical concept. Nothing is secret except to come to light. You don't have to bring it to light. God will do it. And anyone who hears ought to hear. He told them also, take care what you hear. And literally the word is see what you hear. In other words, pay attention to what you hear. Bleppo is the word for I see. Uh, great word, blepo. It sounds like an Italian comedian. But, um, oh well. The uh, um, Pay attention to what you're hearing. And then he says, the measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. To the one who has more will be given. These are principles, inviolable principles of the kingdom of God. In other words, as you measure out, it will be measured to you. If life is treating you terribly, and this may sound hard, it's because you're treating life terribly. The world is is a mirror of, of the person. If you start the day off by smiling at people you meet, you know, then that they're probably going to smile a little more too. You know, you have a terrible time in traffic, you're cursing and swearing and all the people cutting you off, you get to the office and you're in a foul mood, then your secretary thinks you're mad at her and she gets mad at the customers. And As you measure out, it will be measured to you. This is a principle of the kingdom of God. It's irrevocable. If you are a mean, crabby person, guess what? <laughs> going to bounce right back to you. This is a principle of the kingdom of God. Um... So uh, pay attention to it. Uh, take care what you hear. In other words, pay attention to what you're hearing. All right. That said, let us go to letters. All right. I just had to talk about that because, well, I think it's important. All right. Moving along. Moving along. I got lots and lots of letters. Where did I put the letter I wanted to deal with here? I've got a letter. Wait. Oh, there it is. Um uh, this is uh, Vera, who's looking for recommendations on the best history books on church history. And personally, I would say anything written by Mike Aquilina. Uh, he's he writes in a uh, he claims he's not a scholar. He's a journalist whose beat is the first five centuries. I think he's a great scholar, despite what he says. But he does write in a way that is very very um, uh, accessible to non scholarly people. And it's really great stuff. His books on the early church, uh, Dr. Brant Pitry is very good. But I always like to recommend the the uh, the book by Crocker, C R O C K E R, Triumph: The Power and the Glory of the Catholic Church. And 
Cracker's great because he points out, you know, the great days of the church, there never were any. It's been a constant spiritual warfare, and you might as well get used to it. It's a great book, and it it's a very readable um, uh, walk through 20 centuries. So I recommend Crocker wholeheartedly. Aquilina, uh, Dr. Papandrea is, is very good. He's, he's more scholarly. Uh, you know, he, he really is a scholar. Uh, so after you've read Aquilina, you can move on to Papandrea. They've collaborated on some books. They're v- both very, very good. So I hope that answers your question, Vera. And let us go to other questions. Here we go. Now here is, um, this is from, uh, Tony. Hi, Father Simon. I've written on this topic before. My question wasn't is, if I find a Catholic man, can I get married? Yes, I got my annulment right away after my divorce. Uh, yeah, if, if, and I, I, I want to talk about this because I want to talk about annulment. Um, so yes, if, if you, if your first marriage was annulled, uh, and you meet a Catholic man who is free to, himself is free to marry, uh, of course you can get married. Um, annulment. What is an annulment? An annulment is not a divorce. Divorce is we were married, now we're not married. Uh, this is for people who think marriage is a contract. We Catholics do not think marriage is a contract. It is a covenant. As I've said a, a thousand times, a contract is I give you that you might give me. A covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. We believe marriage is a covenant, and a covenant is dissolved only by the death of one of those who covenant. However, within the covenant, there is a contractual element. And the, the covenant of marriage has a contractual element in it that promises three things. Fidelity. In other words, you will be faithful and be intimate only with this person whom you are marrying. Uh, uh, or, or, or not only with this person you're marrying, but as long as you both shall live. Then there's exclusivity, which is you will be intimate only with this person. And there is uh, the um, um, the condition that you give your spouse the permission or the right, rather, to have children. Even if you cannot physically have children, a valid marriage gives people the right to, to have children, not, not the ability, but the right. In other words, um, if for some reason two people marry and they decide they are not going to have children for legitimate reasons, uh, medical reasons, uh, you know, it's a very rare situation in which you would do that. And then one of the partners changes his or her mind. You've given that person the right to have children. Uh, this is an important element of, of, of the the contract within the covenant. Also, can you can a contract be valid if there's force? Can a contract and a covenant be valid if there's dishonesty? In other words, I'm I'm marrying you simply to get your money. Um, well, that might invalidate the 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 the, the covenant um, that that uh, I, I didn't want to enter into the, the sacrament. Or I can say that that I wanted to have children where I was lying and I didn't want to have children. That That's not uncommon. Um, if if I married to hide a psychological or a, a, um, a moral uh, problem, that might be invalid. And you must have total freedom. 
In the Catholic Church, there is no such thing as a shotgun wedding. Um, so, what an annulment does is it carefully looks at the wedding itself. In the hour of your marriage was your intention to be faithful, to be open to life, and to be uh, uh, to have, enter into a permanent relationship. Uh, doesn't matter if you changed your mind two days later or you were not sure two days before. What matters is when you exchange your vows in that covenant. Now, normally, if a person changes their mind in, in, in two days or two hours, they, they were probably not uh, uh, ready to make that commitment. But my point in all this is an annulment is not a Catholic divorce. A divorce is saying we were married, now we're not. An annulment is saying there never was a marriage. And I've seen that this is real. You will meet people, and perhaps you've heard me say this before, who have been married for 25, 30 years. And it's like they're strangers to each other. The bond, the spiritual bond never formed. Then you'll meet people who are married and divorced four or five times. And when they have to make an important decision, they call their wife, meaning the first one. You know, I've known a lot of, I've known a lot of divorces that just didn't take. And uh, I think this thing about annulment is very real. So I just wanted to use this letter to, to refresh people on the nature of an annulment. And uh, uh, it, it's, it's different than a contract, which I believe is one of the reasons that uh, I don't want to go to a civil marriage because, well, it's, you know, you want me to come to the signing of the contract when you buy a car? You know, I'm being a little cynical, but, well, there you go. Okay, this is a call from John who said, Someday I'll call in and ask why Jesus had to become man in order to sympathize with us as our high priest. My guess is that even God, who can't make a square circle lie or violate his identity, could not truly experience humanity without becoming human. I, I don't know that I would say this. Um, this would be in keeping with the law of identity. Uh, we were made in the image and likeness of God. So human experience, you know, this idea that God can't make a square circle, God, God is bound only by his own nature. Uh, I don't know about squaring the circle, but uh, things by definition, God defines them. God speaks things into existence. So, so that's, that's, uh, um, God is truth. So, especially when it comes to math, God does not violate mathematical principles. We believe that God is bound only by his own nature. He is not bound by anything else. He is absolutely sovereign, but he is not capricious. That the nature of the universe, uh, at least to some degree, flows from the nature of God. Uh, the universe is not completely divorced from its creator. And we were not completely divorced in the sin of Adam and Eve from our creator. The image of God, though buried by sin in human beings is still there. Now, he made us in his image and likeness, in his own image and likeness. So I, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that he could not experience uh, humanity fully without becoming one of us. He became one of us in order to say uh, uh, that that um, we needn't be afraid of him. You know, that's the, the subtext of scripture, be not afraid. So I thought it said that, that in the letter of the Hebrews that we have a high priest who, not, we do not have a high priest who cannot sacrifice for our own we with our own weaknesses because he was one of us. 
I would say that it doesn't necessarily say that he had to become one of us to experience our our weakness and and our need. No, he became one of us to remind us that he he created us and thus does experience those things. Uh, he does understand them and know them. And so, you know, I, I would have to look at the the chapter more precisely, but. But this idea that, that uh, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. No, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, not simply because he was one of us, but because we were always one with him at some essential level. Uh, I don't know if that explains my view on it, um, but uh, I hesitate to say that God could not know us without becoming one of us. He became one of us because he knew us. That would be my, my take on it. I don't know if that works. All right, let's see here. I have another. Um, uh, this is a tough one. I have a friend who's dying. She has brain cancer and has been told she does not have long to live. She's not Catholic and not religious. I am praying for and saying the chaplet. Could she be anointed? If she wanted to be anointed. Now, I would love to be corrected on this. She could be anointed, even though she is not Catholic. Uh, if she is in extremis, in other words, at the very end, um, th- that an exception is made, but the person has to want that anointing. Um, it- it's a little difficult. You know, I think it's a good thing you're, you're praying the chaplet with her, and I think that that is um, very appropriate. And, you know, I think it's important for us to remember that nobody wants to get us to heaven more urgently than 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 the Lord. And uh, you want her to go to heaven. Well, the Lord wants her to go to heaven so much so that he gave his only begotten son. So uh, I would, I would, I would count on that and trust God for that. And, you know, even as she slips into a coma, pray if she does enter into a comatose state, pray with her all the more. They say that people can hear you in a coma. And, and uh, I've seen that for real, I'll never forget a wonderful man who was on his way back to the church. He'd had some, um, I think it was kidney surgery. He was doing fine. He was up in years. Well, he had a sudden crisis and was dying. And uh, they called me to the hospital and I got there. And the minute I said, I, I, I anointed him and gave him absolution and the apostolic pardon. And the minute that I said the amen after the sign of the cross, he flatlined. He was waiting for me to come. So, you know, the, the, that's why I think assisted suicide is such a heinous thing, because, you see, we're doing homework as long as we're here and we're not gone until we're gone. And I think it's very important that we respect that process of dying. Well, they're suffering so much. How do you know? <laughs> uh, it's interesting that people who come out of a coma said that they could hear everything. All right. So. Just just a thought. Let's see. Why don't we go to a break and we will come back with a word of the day. And uh, um, and you can call in Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. 
Learn more about The Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash Dallas. Oh, hide me in thy bosom until the storm of life is over and rock me in the cradle of thy love. Oh, feed me, Jesus, feed me. Feed me, Jesus, feed me. Amen. Amen. Jesus, remember when people say, you know, I don't go to that church, I don't get fed. Remember what Jesus said about being fed. To, my food is to do the will of my Father. So this idea of being fed isn't just getting overstuffed on biblical minutiae. It's taking what you learn in the scriptures and applying it, which brings us to the word of the day. I want to amplify that idea. Take care of what you hear, you know, as they say in the gospel. And the word, as I said, is blepo, which means watch what you hear. You can look at that and think, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You want to be careful what you're watching, what you're listening to. And I think that's true. Uh, you know, uh, we have a responsibility to avoid, um, you know, stupid things. <laughs> However, I don't think that's the sense of it. The sense of it is pay attention to what you hear. This brings me to a definition that I was sharing the other day, and perhaps I've shared it with you already, of orthodoxy. When people hear orthodoxy, they think of someone who is just sitting there glowering and saying, you know, who, who feels they have the, the power of the, the Spanish Inquisition, which was not such a bad organization, but that's another theme for another day. It was really kind of a life-saving committee, believe it or not. But I don't want to go there today. Um, I will someday. But uh, the uh, this idea that, that orthodoxy is this rigid... Uh, uh, adherence to a code of behavior, especially as it applies to other people than you. I don't think that's orthodoxy. Rabbi Lefkowitz and I, may he rest in peace, he, he said once he liked me because I was orthodox, not Jewish, but orthodox. And I said, I try, Rabbi, I try. Um, we decided that we needed to, to define orthodoxy for ourselves. And the definition we came up with, I think, is a good one. Orthodoxy is the belief that God has spoken and our duty is to hear him as clearly as possible and to obey him as perfectly as possible. You're never going to hear him a hundred percent. We read in first Corinthians, we are, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but you can strive to hear him more and more clearly and then to obey him more and more fully. The first part of that definition, orthodoxy, is the belief that God has spoken. Uh, this is important. Eve was asked the first question in history. She was asked it by the devil. Hath God said? Have you ever noticed that? Hath God said? <laughs> God had clearly said uh, 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 what he wanted. In Genesis 3.1, we read the, the devil saying, well, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, he starts by confusing her. And she says, oh, we made the fruit of the trees in the garden, just not the fruit, uh, the tree in the middle, because on that day we will die. 
um, they were talking about this text of scripture uh, on on uh, uh, on uh, the show this morning on Patrick Madrid's show. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God has said, you must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. And the devil says, surely you will not die. What is the first act of the devil in the seduction of humanity? It is to pry God's command away from humanity. Well, let's think about this. This was a a law written in a desert by patriarchal uh, uh, desert-dwelling nomads. Can we really say that it applies to 21st century sophisticates like ourselves? Yes, we can. I have I have come to believe that man is no more human than the day he was created. And I believe that there was a specific moment in which human beings were created. The process of creation we can discuss, but there was a moment in which the first man and the first woman were 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 created by God. I really do believe that. Uh and and we aren't just a continuum of animal life. That said, the devil's first act was to pry human beings away from what they knew God had clearly said. And that's still the way the devil works. He shakes your faith in what God has said and so leads you to become your own God and to become the arbiter of your own moral life. And that is the beginning of spiritual death. And I think in the church, we are in great danger of that in many segments. You know, that that's why I love the scripture so much, because I want to know what God has said. And I want to know it more and more clearly. He's not going to say anything he hasn't already said in the Holy Scriptures, uh, no matter how I might want him to say it. Uh, now, that will be unpacked and, and, and uh, applied to the current situation. But never, never abrogated or changed. So remember, orthodoxy is to hear, is, is the belief that God has spoken and the desire to hear him clearly and to obey him fully. At least that's the way Rabbi Lefkowitz and I uh, defined orthodoxy. All right, let's go to phone calls. The phone is ringing. I think we are going to have time for... Uh, um, uh, um, more phone calls, 888-914-9149. But let's start with Bill, who's calling in from Wisconsin. The beautiful, beautiful Wisconsin. What can I do for you, Bill? Hi, Father. What, um, what can I do We were talking for you? earlier about... Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, I can hear you. Hello? How, I can um, hear you. I can I was, he- Go on. You were talking earlier about kind of fear and anxiety and cowardice. And I do struggle with those things as well. And I was wondering if you had any good advice on how to deal with that, especially when it comes to trusting people. (laughs) Yeah, well, lots of lots of good things. I I particularly like the surrender novena. I pray it frequently. Um, But, you know, this may sound odd, but uh, the rosary, I really find the rosary a consoling prayer. I really do. Uh, it just, you know, that if the church is an institution, an organization, no, that's, that's nice. 
But if the church is a family, that's that's where we get real consolation from, is the the you know uh, uh, the idea that that the family is there for me. I'm not alone in facing my my problems. And if you see the church as a family, uh, you know that a family always has a mother. I I find the rosary a tremendously consoling prayer. I don't know if you say the rosary frequently. I I I was kind of we were discouraged from rosary devotion, but as I've grown older, I have really come to love the rosary, and and I would recommend it. I, I think it's it to me it is just a constant. Uh, it's a great weapon in spiritual warfare because it reminds the devil that God loves people and I'm one of them. And uh, also it just reminds me that that, that we're a family with a mother. Uh, uh, you know, it doesn't detract from the glory of the Father. It does not detract from the, the uniqueness, the unique salvation received from Jesus. But it does, it's about the, I think the rosary is as much about the true nature of the church. As, as it is about anything, and that is familial. So many people want to make the church sort of a, uh, a non-governmental or a social organization or kind of a, 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 a political action committee or, or some sort of bureaucracy. And the church in the eyes of God is a wife, a mother, a bride, and a family. So you might want to give it a shot. And also the Surrender Novena is really, really beautiful. Oh, Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. It's a good prayer. Does that help a little? Yeah, I actually do pray good. both of those. That one by Father Delindo. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They're, they're good. Just be be persistent in them. And, and you know, you're allowed to say more than one rosary a day. <laughs> when I'm in a really bad way, <laughs> I do say a couple of them. So <laughs> there you go. I hope that helps, Bill. God bless okay. you. And thanks for calling in. Okay, Let's go to you. Brother John. Thank you're you, You're welcome. Let's go. You're welcome. Let's go to Brother John from uh, Fairlawn in New Jersey. Hello, what can brother. I do for you, Brother John? Hello, hello okay. again. What can I do for you? Yes, thank you. A friend of mine cannot find his baptismal certificate. I, I'm pretty sure he was baptized. He doesn't remember yeah. it. Can the church rebaptize conditionally? What? What? Yeah, the, we used to call it a conditional baptism. If he's not sure he was baptized, is he unsure that he was baptized? He's unsure about everything. He said he was too small to remember. He doesn't even remember it. You know, is there anyone? Kind of, uh, uh, is there anyone still alive who remembers it? I don't don't really think so. I uh, I think as a sister, but uh, he hasn't done much uh, in getting anybody in the family to support supply his baptismal certificate. You know, well, what one, one, those... one can one can do is is uh, if if the baptismal certificate is necessary for sacramental purposes, like if he's going to marry or something and the baptismal certificate can't be found, um, an affidavit can be filled out. If his sister said, oh, yes, I was at his baptism, he was baptized. If no one can can find the baptismal certificate and he's not uh, sure he was baptized. Now, another way to go is, does he remember receiving First Holy Communion? Or confirmation? If he remembers those sacraments, if the parishes are still going and open... Oh, he's in the Protestant community. Oh, if oh if he wants to to join the Catholic Church, he can certainly be baptized yes. conditionally. Oh yes, oh, okay. then I would say yes. If were he to come to me and say I I don't know in what formula I was baptized because some some 
some Protestant communities baptize in the name of Jesus only, or they don't use a Trinitarian formula. I don't know if I was validly baptized. I would most certainly baptize them conditionally. And I would start out, if you have never been baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a would conditional that baptism. Power I would be a given to my pastor or my one of the priests in my, oh, in certainly, my uh, certainly. church? Okay. Certainly, certainly. No problem. No problem at all. No problem okay. at all. Yes, That's yes. Any great. priest can make that pastoral decision. And, and uh, you know, we, we have great respect for baptism and for the baptism of Protestant churches when they baptize in the Trinitarian formula. But there do come times when we need to baptize conditionally. We always used to do that. But now, of course, we do it only when there's good reason to do so. Will the so I hope that helped, Brother John. In the Catholic well, Church, will it make him Catholic? Um, the profession of faith would make him Catholic if he's already been baptized validly. Uh, the profession of faith that would come along with that conditional baptism would certainly make him Catholic if he's already been baptized. And if he has not been baptized, the, the, um, the conditional baptism would make him a member of, of the Catholic Church. Yeah. But it's, it's really and the, he commu- the profession can we see of communion in the Catholic Church? So of course, of course, of course. Once he's baptized and professed faith in the Catholic Church and been received into the Church, he can receive communion. He would be confirmed and receive Holy Communion, of course. Yes. To the best of my knowledge, that's certainly what I have done when these I things see. have come up. And this sort of thing has come up in my life and ministry. Um, Thank that, you very that much, are not sure they're valid. Well, good. I, I, I hope it works well for him. So, well, thanks Thank for you. calling in, Brother John. God bless. Thank you. All right. Okay. Let us let us go to Paulette in San Diego, California. Are you with us, Paulette? Paulette? Yes, I Hello, am. Paulette? I'm here. Yes, what can I do for you, Paulette? My question is, has any female saint been given the stigmata? Well, I know women have. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, there, there are. Um, uh, I'm thinking. Uh, uh, I, I'm thinking of. Uh, uh, I can't, well, venerable is she venerable or blessed? Uh, um, uh, the the. Uh, oh, good grief! Let's see here. I think Saint Catherine of Assisi, or rather Saint Catherine. Uh, uh, oh, good Siena. grief. Uh, St. Catherine of Siena of had Siena? a stigmata. Yes, and Sister Faustina uh, 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 had a, an invisible stigmata. St. Rita of Cascia had the stigmata. And I'm thinking of, uh, is she blessed? Uh, uh, Teresa Neumann, uh, I think she had the stigmata. So, oh, yes, there have been women who had the stigmata. No problem. Okay, that's what and I wanted to know. There you go. Well, yes. Well, speaking of the stigmata, I'm hearing music in my head. And Drew is coming up. Uh, And though he does not have the stigmata, he's still a great prayer, so don't go anywhere. (laughs) You know the stigmata, they say it hurts, but uh, I don't know. (laughs) Where was I? Said Drew is coming up, and he'll pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet, and that is a wonderful prayer. (laughs) 